You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Alright, well thank you everybody for joining us. My name is Tim and I'm going to be your host for today. And uh, right off the bat, what I want to do is uh, is just give a little shout out to Len Pettis. Uh, if, if you remember from last week's episode, we were talking about the Disney movie and asking the question whether or not Christians should go and see the movie. And then at the very end, I, I brought up a... A challenge issued to Len by Greg Smith about the Wolverine movie, and Greg Smith was was trying to get Len to debate him, and Len's not interested in debating, and I think that's fine. I mean, we we you know need to respect uh, where everybody's at, but I I I thought at the time you know that would be a pretty interesting debate, but um, after after going over it again, I I realized, and I didn't even get to listen to my own episode again, but I, I became a little bit concerned that I might have misrepresented Len in in that episode. And here's what I'm talking about. So there was there were two conversations I believe that that took place, and I was only viewing the fr- the second conversation, in which uh, Greg Smith had. Uh, and I, by the way, I, I appreciate both these guys. I appreciate Greg Smith and Len Pettis. So I'm not taking sides. But Greg Smith had posted up a a com uh, a comment uh, up on on the the Wingnut page, and part of that was a uh, a picture a screenshot of some uh, of a conversation uh, in w- that included Len and Greg, and the first uh, the first thing that pops up in that picture is a comment by Len that says, "Then get busy with your log, sir." In in the episode, I, I you know talked about how it really bothers me when when Christians are confronted about something and then they try to find fault with somebody else by saying, well, you know, you're a hypocrite or you have a log in your eye. And um, I I'm not sure if so. Here, here's what I want to do. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that this comment. Uh, and by the way, I still haven't seen the original comment, but. I was I was informed that Len's comment was not to Greg Smith, and so I just want to make that clear. Uh, and so my criticism wouldn't be applicable to Len. So that's just in fairness to Len. Uh, and again, I really appreciate Len. <laughs> I uh, I I thought the uh, you know when when Greg said uh, that. He'll bury him in the name of Jesus, you know, in a debate. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty funny. I mean, you know, Lynn's a martial artist. He would probably bury me in the name of Jesus if, if we did, you know, competition in martial arts. So, um, anyways, I appreciate both these guys. I've, I've talked to both of them. I know a little bit more about where they're coming from, and, uh, and I just wanted to make that clear to, to our listeners. And today what we are going to do is we're going to play a lecture from John Robbins from the Trinity Foundation titled Introduction to Apologetics. 
And this really falls in line with where we're at at Semper Reformanda Radio. Somebody put up a question on, I think, um, some presuppositionalist apologetic page on Facebook. A question about, you know, what are the different names for presuppositional apologetics? And somebody said something about reformed apologetics. Somebody else said uh, there's covenantal apologetics. And so I think a lot of people are trying to rebrand the name presuppositionalism. And I would just say stick with scripturalism. That's what we are. We're scripturalists. And I think it falls uh, falls in line beautifully with the, the principle of sola scriptura. And uh, I would encourage everybody, if you're interested in scripturalism, the presuppositional apologetic method of, of uh, Gordon Clark and the Clarkian side, check out the book, uh, The Scripturalism of Gordon Clark by Dr. Gary Crampton. I think it's excellent. It's a very small book, and it, but it's a, it's a powerful introduction to Clark and uh, his, his apologetic method. And uh, let me see what else. We are, of course, everybody knows that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, so I want to say thank you to those guys. Uh, a ministry under striving for eternity with Andrew Rappaport, so say thank you to Andrew. And, um, oh, this this is the other thing. So we, we would like to encourage everybody to continue to pray for uh, Paul Washer. We here at Semper Reformanda Radio absolutely love Paul Washer. We we have Paul Washer, a clip from Paul Washer, in the introduction to our show. Uh, a couple of episodes back, we we defended Paul Washer from false accusations that he's a heretic. Now we we may not agree with anybody 100% on on everything, but um, we want everybody to know that that Paul Washer is. If you get a chance to check out Paul Washer's ministry, if you get a chance to listen to his sermons, we would definitely encourage everybody to do that. We highly recommend him. And um, and our prayers and our support go out to Paul Washer. Uh, we encourage everybody else to keep him in, uh, in prayer. If you don't know what happened, this last week Paul Washer suffered a heart attack. And I've seen different people post different stuff, but... From what I understand is that he's now recovering, but I'm not really sure how difficult a road to recovery would be or what that entails. So I don't have the information on that, but God is sovereign. He's in control of of Pastor Washer's life, just as he's in control of, of my life as well. So we we love the man. We're praying for him, and we would encourage everybody else to do that as well. And that'll be it for, for us today. I hope you enjoy this, this lecture by John Robbins uh, from the Trinity Foundation. And I want to say thank you to Tom Geodatus for allowing us to play it. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, so God bless everybody. Thank you. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. Hey, the first lecture is just an introduction to apologetics. Uh, then I will spend the second hour talking about some of the apologists of the early church. By early church, I mean from the year 400 back to the year 100 uh, A.D. Then we'll get into our first major thinker, uh, Aurelius Augustine. Uh, some people call him Saint Augustine, but his name is pronounced Augustine. Uh, a good way to remember it is that St. Augustine is in Florida, St. Augustine is in heaven. And uh, so we'll be studying an hour uh, on Augustine and his defense of the faith. Uh, tomorrow 
we'll be talking about uh, some more major thinkers. We'll begin with Anselm, a major thinker in the Middle Ages, uh, followed by Thomas Aquinas, who is the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, in the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church recognized Aquinas as a doctor. That means in Latin, a teacher. He's the teacher of the church. Uh, followed, following our discussion of Aquinas, we'll be talking about John Calvin and Martin Luther, uh, the reformers in the 16th century. Then we'll turn to some more modern figures. Uh, some people perhaps have heard of Joseph Butler or William Paley or Schleiermacher or Kierkegaard. Some of these names are a mouthful. And then we'll finally get to the 20th century Wednesday evening. Uh, then that is the extent of our discussion of historical apologetics. By that I mean how apologetics has been done by various figures up until the 20th century. Then we'll turn our attentions on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday to biblical apologetics, how apologetics was done by Christ and the apostles, and how it ought to be done today. Quite different from historical apologetics. You aren't going to find many figures in the past 2,000 years who actually looked at what Christ and the apostle Paul, for example, did and said, this is the way we have to defend the faith. Very few people have done that. And for the next three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we'll be spending a lot of time in the Bible. And I urge you to bring your Bibles with you, bring notebooks, bring pencils to take notes. I'll be putting a lot of things up on the overhead. Uh, I won't be having many handouts. But there are a good many handouts on the table out in the uh, lobby. And if you'll pick copies of those up and read them, if you can't get them all read this week, at least read them uh, as soon as possible, because they're all relevant uh, to what we'll be talking about this week. There's probably a dozen different pieces out there, maybe more. And uh, I've got uh, a couple of them up here that I would say are especially important. This little pamphlet entitled, What is Christian Philosophy?, and this little booklet entitled Christ and Civilization. I would urge you to read those two and the others at your leisure. So, in the course of the week, the questions that are posed on that other sheet you just got. What is apologetics? What's the relationship between apologetics and evangelism? You know, if you go to a Christian college or if you go to a seminary, virtually every seminary in the country they will say, well, you have to take a course in evangelism, but apologetics is optional. You don't have to take a course in apologetics. But you do have to know something about evangelism. Well, this is completely contrary to what Christ and the apostles did. Uh, and we're given a command by the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, to always be ready to offer a defense uh, to give an explanation for the hope that is in us. Now, that's a command from Peter. It's not an elective. It's not something that we can make optional. It's not something that we can take or leave as we please. It's a command. And in the context of the church, uh, it, apologetics ought to be practiced. I was very favorably impressed with the way that uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church organizes its services. In many churches, they have what amounts to a protected pu uh, pulpit. A protected pulpit. What I mean by that is the minister stands up in the pulpit and gives a sermon, and no one dares ask a question. No one uh, makes a comment. No one disagrees. Now, you won't find a single example of that happening in the New Testament. Every time Christ and the apostles spoke, they invited questions. They entertained questions. There was discussion after they spoke. But the church has gotten into the habit of protecting the sermon, as it were, and saying, no, we're, we're not going to entertain any questions. We're not going to entertain any comments. We're just going to go on. We'll sing another hymn, and then we'll go. So there's no discussion. 
Well, what's one of the effects of that? One of the effects is that the people in the church, including the pastor himself, doesn't learn how to do apologetics, doesn't learn how to deal with questions, doesn't learn how to defend the faith. He's protected by the institution from having to defend the faith. Well, what's the option then for hearers? Well, they have two options. They can come and keep quiet, or they can not come. And 150 million people don't come in the United States. They simply don't come. What's the point? They can't have questions. Uh, they can't have a discussion. Uh, they may have some serious inquiries to make, but it's forbidden in the church. So what we're going to see over the course of the week, I hope, is that what Christ and the apostles did is quite different from what many of these historical figures uh, did uh, for the first, at least first 1,500 years uh, of the Christian era. Well, let me begin uh, formally by offering a definition of apologetics. Uh, can anyone take a guess? What would you say apologetics is? Anybody have an idea? Yes, sir. Defending the faith. Okay, in broad terms, defending the faith. What does that mean? Does that mean we all shoot own guns and shoot everybody that disagrees with us? Is it, are we talking about defense in that sense? What kind of defense are we talking about? Logical answers to questions that people ask. Okay, we're talking about an intellectual defense. We're not talking about a military or a physical defense, but we're talking about an intellectual defense of the faith. Now, what's the faith? That's the other important phrase here. What is the faith? We're told in the Bible, uh, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. What is the faith? Okay, what do you mean by belief? Are you talking about uh, believing, or are you talking about the propositions believed? See, it's ambiguous in ordinary language what we mean by faith and what we mean by belief. You may say, I have faith, and what, we're, what we mean by that is uh, I, I go through a certain exercise in my mind. I believe. It's a psychological thing. I have faith. But when we're told to contend earnestly for the faith, it's something different. It's an objective body of knowledge in that sense. It's not a subjective believing, but an objective body of knowledge. Let me offer a definition of apologetics, and you might want to jot this down. It'll stay on the uh, overhead here. Can everybody read that? Christian apologetics is the rational justification of the duty to believe the Bible. The rational justification of the duty to believe the Bible. Now this is a little bit broader, a little bit more full than simply defense of the faith. It involves also offense. Uh, you've heard the saying, the best defense is a good offense. Well, we're going to see how that occurs in the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular, when Christ talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here you have a short definition of apologetics. Christian apologetics is the rational justification of the duty to believe the Bible. Everyone has the duty to believe. No one can believe on his own power. The only reason some people believe is because God causes them to believe. But everyone has the duty to believe. When the revelation comes from God in the Bible, it comes to every man, and everyone has the duty to believe it when he hears it. And apologetics is the rational justification of that duty to believe. You have an obligation to believe it. If you don't believe it, if you hear uh, the Bible, if you read parts of it and don't believe it, your sin is greater than it was before because you're failing in your duty to believe the Bible. 
Uh, a more standard definition, perhaps, of apologetics is one something like we just gave here. The intellectual defense of Christianity. That's another way of putting it. Not quite as broad, not quite as full or complete as the first one, but that's a good and standard definition. Now, we have to be careful what we mean by Christianity. Christianity is the propositions of the 66 books of the Bible. It's what the Bible teaches. Those propositions and all their logical implications. This church adheres to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm sure you've seen it in the back of the hymnal, if nowhere else. That's the best summary of what Christianity is that has yet been written. The best summary. But Christianity is the propositions of the Bible and all their logical implications. Now, it's important to keep in mind what Christianity is not as well. Christianity isn't whatever Christians believe. We get the idea sometimes that, well, we're Christians, and we've got this particular idea, so this idea must be a Christian idea. Not so. Many of us carry around in our minds ideas that are holdovers from the world. They're not derived from the Bible, but they're ideas that we've had with us uh, for some time or we've picked up from the culture, from television, from the newspaper, uh, from movies, wherever. We've gotten these ideas. And just because they're in our minds and we are Christians doesn't make them Christian ideas. So you have to be careful about uh, the mistake of thinking that uh, Christianity is whatever Christians happen to believe, or people who claim to be Christians. Uh, Christianity isn't common sense. This is important, too. Many people confuse the two. Uh, they think, well, Christianity is only common sense. Uh, let me ask you a question here. Uh, let's suppose, uh, in fact, I'm going to ask you two questions to test your reliance on common sense. Uh, one of them is this. I want, I want you to do some work for me. And uh, I'll give you a choice as to how you want to be paid. Do you want uh, The job will take a month, and I'll offer you $25,000 for that month's work. Uh, or I will start you at uh, a penny for the first day. Uh, first day you work, I'll give you a penny. Second day you work, I'll give you two cents. Third day you work, I'll give you four cents. I'll just double that, whatever it is, every day. Uh, by the time you get up to uh, uh, day five, you'll be making 16 cents a day. By the time you get to day 10, uh, you'll be making $5 a day. Uh, which would you prefer? $25,000 for the month's work or a penny a day, uh, double each day? Um, any any preferences, anybody? <laughs> you know what's coming. <laughs> twenty. It doesn't sound like as much as twenty-five thousand. You know, you're offering me twenty-five thousand dollars a day, or uh, uh, I could make it a day for that matter. Twenty-five thousand dollars a month. Uh, but look at these numbers. Um, as I say, by the time you're up at uh, day ten, you're making five dollars and twelve cents a day, but look at how those numbers increase. Starting at a penny a day for a month. The total for the month? Twenty-one million. Now would any of you have guessed that if you started out at a penny a day doubled, by the end of the month you would be you would have made twenty-one million dollars in thirty-one days? The last day alone, you make nearly $11 million. Day 31. You better hope the month is March and not February, uh, because you're going to lose quite a bit of money if it's only 28 days. Uh, but there's an example. I gave an example last year of how people are misled by common sense uh, with another employment example. And I'll put that one up again in case uh, anyone's forgotten it. This is job A and job B. Uh, starting salary is the same, uh, 20000 for each. 
Uh, one is a $2,000 annual raise, the other is a $500 semi-annual raise. And uh, $2,000 uh, yearly sounds a lot more than $500 uh, every six months. But if you do the arithmetic again, uh, you're much better off taking job B, the $500 raise. But it doesn't sound commonsensical. Now, common sense has changed over the centuries. What we would say is common sense today uh, might have been irrational 200 or 500 years ago. Uh, people have common opinions, and they think they understand things, uh, but they're actually quite wrong. Uh, common sense in the medical field a couple hundred years ago might have been bloodletting is good. We let blood uh, when someone is ill. Uh, today, that's not accepted in medicine, uh, bloodletting. Uh, they used to drill holes in people's skulls uh, to let out the bad uh, spirits. They didn't mean by that uh, what we mean by spirit, but humors, they were called. And so they would drill holes in people's skulls uh, to let these things out. Again, uh, that appeared to be common sense to the medical men of those days, uh, but today it would be regarded as quackery. So common sense changes. Um, Christianity is not some other things. Here, let me get my proper overhead up here. It's not the opinions of scientists. It's not the opinions of, of medicine men. It's not the opinions of physicians. It's not the opinions of church leaders. Sometimes we think that uh, uh, if their leaders in a church or if the churches get together in a council, then they're talking about Christianity. Well, they may or may not be talking about Christianity. Uh, we have to stick with the definition of Christianity as the propositions of the Bible and all their logical implications. And if we understand those things, uh, we can understand pretty much uh, what apologetics is about. Now, how important is... Yes? Yes? No, go right ahead. Well, I've been working on this problem because um, of it. We were taught that the word believe meant to be like something, and if we believe in God, then we would be like Jesus. And, and that was not correct. And so then I was trying to, um, to go back to the, the, uh, the concordance and see, and it said to adhere to, to trust in, to have faith in. And so I was working off that thing, and then I heard somebody say, I was talking about believing in Christ, believing in Jesus as God. The question, let me repeat it briefly, is um, if there's a different meaning for the word belief in Christianity than there is in the world, how does one explain what we're talking about when we use the word belief? And let me uh, preface uh, my comments by saying that most theologians don't know what the word means. Um, and I was going to give you, ask you some questions. Um, do you believe that 2 plus 2 is 4? Okay, now what do, what do you mean when you say two, you believe 2 plus 2 is 4? You understand what the sentence means, 2 plus 2 is 4, and you agree with it. You agree that it's true. And that's all belief is. 
It's understanding and agreeing that it is true. Uh, belief is not obedience. Obedience comes from belief. But it's not the same thing. It comes from it. It's a consequence of belief. Uh, Augustine, uh, one of the fellows we're going to study uh, tomorrow, or no, I guess it's the third lecture this evening, um, a defined faith or belief, they're synonymous, as understanding with assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, understanding with assent. If someone assents to it, if they believe that it's true, if they agree that it is true, they understand what the proposition is to begin with and they agree that it's true, uh, then they have faith or belief. Um, he emphasized both those elements are important. Understanding, you cannot believe something you don't understand. Uh, if I were to say to you, um, il pleut, and ask you if you uh, believe that, um, what would your response be? Well, that would be the proper response. Laughter. <laughs> There's a man that knows a little French. <laughs> but see, if you don't understand it, uh, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, yes, I believe, or no, I don't believe. I'm talking, I might as well be talking Greek to use the, uh, to use the uh, aphorism. Understanding is fundamental. This is what is wrong with the doctrine of the Catholic Church on faith and belief. They say, they teach what they call implicit faith. That is, they say it's not necessary that the person in the pew understand the doctrines of the church. All he has to agree to is to believe whatever the church teaches. He doesn't have to understand it. He just has to say, well, I, I agree with whatever the church teaches. And they call that implicit faith. Calvin and Luther ridiculed the idea. Said, how can you uh, assent, how can you believe what you don't understand? Of course you can't. Uh, the other half of it is uh, you have to assent to it. It's not simply an intellectual understanding uh, of the material. Many people have a good, solid, intellectual understanding of Christianity. Many unbelievers have a solid uh, understanding of Christianity. They just don't believe it. Many believers have a solid understanding of Karl Marx or John Dewey, but they don't believe what they taught. They understand what they taught, but they don't agree that it's true. They don't believe it. So it's not enough to have uh, intellectual knowledge in that sense. That's not the same thing as faith or belief. You also have to agree that it's true. And that makes it faith or assent. Unbelievers can understand the Bible. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the unbelievers in Christ's time, for example, the Pharisees <coughs> seemed to understand better than the disciples what Jesus was saying. That's why they persecuted him so vigorously. That's why they plotted to kill him. They understood quite well that he was claiming to be God. Uh, the apostles seem to be slower to catch on. The disciples, I should say. Uh, they understood it. They just didn't believe it. And they could not believe it because that assent is a gift of God. The natural man by himself cannot believe the gospel to be true. That is what's given by God. Um, and I hope if you, if you do a word study on faith or belief, uh, in the gospel or in the New Testament, uh, you'll come to the same conclusion. People have attacked the statement, for instance, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved as easy believism. Well, there are two things that need to be said about that. Uh, first, uh, belief is impossible for the natural man, so it's not easy believism. And the second thing is, that that's what's necessary for salvation. And it's the only thing necessary is that belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Justification by faith alone, or by belief alone. Not by works, uh, not by obedience, but justification by faith alone.
uh, obedience will follow necessarily from that belief. If, if you say you believe 2 plus 2 is 4, but when you balance your checkbook, you always put down 5, uh, you really don't believe it. If you, if you say, if you make a profession and say, well, I believe 2 plus 2 is 4, but whenever you do your sums in your checkbook, you put down 5, you really don't believe it. Uh, if you did believe it, your practice will conform to your belief. You will write down 4 in your checkbook. And those who uh, James, for instance, attacks uh, in his, his epistle are those who say they have faith, but do not. Read that verse carefully. It says, if a man says he has faith. James is not attacking a man with faith. He is attacking a man who has an empty profession. He says he believes, but he doesn't believe. Well, let me... Uh, return uh, directly to apologetics, and I want to give you a quote next. You might want to jot this down, or you might want to read the book, or at least the author, uh, one of his books. His name is Machen, spelled M-A-C-H-E-N. And he was one of the greatest defenders of Christianity in the century. He taught uh, for years at Princeton Seminary. Uh, he left Princeton Seminary and started a new seminary, uh, Westminster Seminary. And he also started a new Presbyterian church. He was kicked out of the mainline Presbyterian church. And in 1936, he started a church called the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And uh, he was threatened with a lawsuit by the existing Presbyterian church. So they changed the name of the church to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, rather than the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, this is what Machen has to say about the importance of apologetics and the importance of ideas. And I hope you'll pay attention to these words. He says, we may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there. If we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Now that's a long sentence, but you might want to jot it down and, and think about it later. He says, under, some uh, under such circumstances, when the ideas in the world, and this is definitely the case in the 20th century, and it's been the case for more than 200 years, he says, under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle, that is, the obstacle that prevents Christianity from getting a serious hearing at its root. He says, many would have the seminary's combat error by attacking it as it, is, as it is taught in its popular exponents. Let me go on to the second page here. <clears throat> that is, they think the seminary should be talking about Madeleine Murray O'Hare or people of that sort, the popular exponents of unbelief. Uh, has anybody heard any news about Madeline? She's been gone for six or eight months. And no one seems to know where she's disappeared to. Um, but you don't attack Madeline Murray O'Hare in the seminary, as Machen says. says, instead of that, the seminaries confuse their students with a lot of German names unknown outside the walls of the university. He's talking tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, that method of procedure is based simply upon a profound belief in the pervasiveness of ideas. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. Now we've seen the the truth of his words illustrated repeatedly in the 20th century. Uh, the, what he calls the pervasiveness of ideas. 
The idea of evolution, for example. Both the communists and the Nazis loved Darwin and the idea of evolution. Uh, Marx, Karl Marx, the founder of communism, wanted to dedicate Das Kapital, his book on capitalism, to Karl Marx. Uh, Marx refused to let him. I'm sorry, I've got that backwards. <clears throat> Karl Marx wanted to dedicate, dedicate his book to Charles Darwin, and Darwin refused to let him do it. Why did he want to do that? Well, it's because he thought that Darwin had discovered laws in nature, just as Marx thought he had discovered laws in society that explained the development of society. Um, Marx's dogma was a form of survival of the fittest, just as Darwin's dogma was. In Marx, it was survival of the economically fittest. In Darwin, it's survival of the biological fittest. The same with Hitler. Uh, Hitler's doctrine was a doctrine of the survival of the racial fittest, the race that is the fittest, the most superior race. And it's okay to exterminate other races. No problem. Because they are inferior. And Darwin has explained to us uh, that the inferior must die. Whether you call the inferior the bourgeoisie, as Marx did, or the non-Aryans, as Hitler did, makes no difference. Uh, they both trace their uh, intellectual heritage to Charles Darwin. And those ideas in the 20th century have moved armies and pulled down empires. Does anyone know how um, the Ayatollah, that's a title perhaps many of you are too young to be familiar with, uh, the Ayatollah became the uh, leader of Iran. Anybody know how he accomplished that? He didn't inherit the job. Uh, in fact, he was in exile in Paris in the 1970s. And what he did was he made cassette tapes. And he collected a group of followers, and they made massive numbers of these cassette tapes and shipped them into Iran. People played them on their uh, tape recorders, and he convinced a large number of the Iranian people that he was right, and the government collapsed in Iran. It was done with cassette tapes. There you have as good an example in, in uh, the late 1970s of ideas moving empires, moving armies, and pulling down empires. Uh, ideas are very powerful. And Machen's argument is that as Christians, we have to be engaged in intellectual battle. We cannot afford to sit back and say, well, we're going to preach just the simple gospel. Nonsense, he says. If you do that, he said, you're maybe going to get a person here or there. He calls it a straggler, here or there. But the whole society uh, is going to be death to Christianity. You're not going to have any influence in the society uh, whatsoever. <coughs> Well, not everybody has been in favor of defending the faith. Uh, for example, here's a fellow, uh, and we'll hear more about him later in the week, uh, a Danish philosopher named uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And notice his comment here. What do you think of this statement about apologetics? He says, to defend anything is always to discredit it. Let a man have a storehouse full of gold, let him be willing to dispense every ducat to the poor, but let him besides that be stupid enough to begin his benevolent undertaking with a defense in which he advances three reasons to prove that it's justifiable. And people will be almost inclined to doubt whether he's doing any good. But now for Christianity, yea, he who defends it has never believed it. He who defends it has never believed it. Kierkegaard uh, was attacking apologetics, the whole idea of apologetics, the idea of defending Christianity. Yet he engaged in apologetics himself. 
what do you think of his illustration? He's very good, very clever writer, and he's always good at coming up with illustrations that uh, confuse people or perhaps make them think. That's, that's a very plausible illustration here. If I have a, a lot of money to give away, and instead of just giving it away to the poor, I start out by hiring a philosopher to explain what I'm doing and to justify it, he says, that's going to raise doubts in people's minds. He says, that's a stupid thing to do, defend this sort of thing. He says, those doubts wouldn't arise unless the philosopher gets out there and defends it. Well, this raises the question, what is the relationship between apologetics and evangelism? Which comes first? Any ideas? Yes, sir. Aren't they both kind of intertwined? They certainly are. And I, I, I don't think that you could have some, uh, that you could have some, that you could have to the world without being apologetic. Okay. Okay. They're both intertwined, as the gentleman says. Uh, you can't, uh, I've made the point here that you cannot uh, be a good Christian and fail to defend the faith. But that leaves us still with the question, do we start out with a defense or how do we start out? Do we do what Kierkegaard is accusing us of doing? Notice the words, <clears throat> but let him besides that be stupid enough to begin this benevolent undertaking with a defense. No, you don't begin with a defense. You begin with the proclamation of the gospel. And when we look at the practice of Christ and the apostles, they begin with the proclamation of the gospel. And then as questions arise, they deal with those questions. They don't begin with a defense. The defense is secondary in nature. Both things have to be done. You have to have a proclamation of the gospel or evangelism, uh, and you have to have the defense. But you don't go out with the defense. You begin with the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, otherwise, Kierkegaard has a point to make here. Uh, if, however, the philanthropist goes out and he gives away his money, and then the criticism comes, then he defends himself. But he doesn't respond to non-existent questions. Uh, to do so is to raise doubts in the minds of the people. He responds to real questions after the gospel has been proclaimed. Well, let's look at a couple of other things, and then we're going to have to uh, uh, break here uh, shortly. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Now, judging by the speed I'm going, uh, I don't know if we're going to adhere to this uh, schedule or not for the week, but we'll see what we can do. Look at these uh, verses, actually one verse or two verses there from 2 Timothy, and then a quotation from the Westminster Confession, uh, the confession of this church. And I've put in dark type some words I want to emphasize here. Uh, the sufficiency of the Bible is a central idea of Christianity. On the bulletins here at uh, Westminster Presbyterian, you'll see four slogans on the front cover. The first one is sola scriptura, Latin phrase meaning the Bible alone. The Bible alone. It teaches not only that the Bible is necessary for knowledge, it teaches that the Bible is sufficient for knowledge. You don't need anything else. It's the Bible alone. We don't need church councils. We don't need philosophy. We don't need science. We don't need common sense. It's the Bible alone. And one of the verses that that slogan uh, is based on is taken here from 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Apologetics falls in that category. Uh, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice the words complete, thoroughly, and every. 
We don't need anything else. We don't need any of those things I mentioned. Science, philosophy, common sense, decisions of church council, nothing. The scripture equips the man of God completely for every good work. Not for some good works. Not for a few good works, but for every work. And then the Westminster Confession itself expresses the definition of Christianity that I gave you a few minutes ago in these words. Uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing, notice the nothing, at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nothing is to be added to it, whether by tradition or by alleged new revelations of the Spirit. <clears throat> Here you have the idea that Christianity is what the Bible says. And it doesn't have to say it in so many words. I think last year I gave you this example. Um, it, it, there may never be the sentence. I haven't looked it up to check. But the sentence may not appear in the Bible uh, Absalom was the son of a king of Israel. That sentence may not appear in the Bible. Absalom was the son of a king of Israel. But we're told that David was the king of Israel, and we're told that Absalom was the son of David. And we conclude by what the confession calls deduction by good and necessary consequence that Absalom was the son of the king of Israel. It's not And we're told that Absalom was the son of David. And we conclude by what the confession calls deduction by good and necessary consequence that Absalom was the son of the king of Israel. It's not just the uh, words written in the Bible that we're required to believe, but we're also required to believe all their logical implications. We're required to believe that Absalom was the son of the king of Israel, even though it doesn't say it in the Bible in so many words. It's a necessary inference. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening, and welcome to Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com.